So here we are, another episode of Random But Memorable. And it's been a while since the Brits have been on a call together for the podcast. Oh, that's very true. I think it was back in season three or four we were recording at your old house, Matt, our roundtable tip special when we could actually meet in person. Oh, those were the days. Yeah, can you remember those wonderful days? Was that a heatwave as well? No, it was like Christmas. We were no. drinking tea. We were drinking tea. Oh. Eating biscuit, eating yule logs. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't enough tea, if I remember, Matt. I am bad at that. <laughs> if anybody knows me in person, they will realise that I drink a lot of tea. But once I've drunk it, it's completely out of my mind and I will not think to make another. It is if tea, I believe, in my being happens by magic <laughs> and, and is something that other people make. I'm that person. I mean, that would be the dream, right? If you could just summon tea into your cup with like the click of your fingers. There must be a spell for that in Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> you would hope so. <laughs> Asio tea. <laughs> it's also fitting that while we're in a heat wave here, all I can think about and every memory that I have is of heat. That's it now. I live here. This is all all that can ever be. Your brain is melting. You mean you've forgotten how cold it was like three weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. And then it <laughs> rained in every day of May. It did rain every day. Like it, it was it was torrential. So we've already covered tea and the weather. We are truly British, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> So welcome back to Random But Memorable, the podcast brought to you by 1Password. We're here to bring you lots of friendly security advice, a roundup of the latest security news and some very special guests. To bring it back to technology, that was a, a brilliant WWDC that happened what was it last, last night? night for us God, yeah there was so much that happened and I, I watched the State of the Union as well which is just after but uh, yeah some exciting advancements in Safari across all platforms yeah uh, and, and if you look at the one password Twitter you can see that we're already doing things that are pretty cool with that with the kind of you know allowing our extension to be on on multiple platforms so cool we are also a finalist for an Apple Design Award, Woo-hoo! which I am incredibly humbled by. Yes, just to be nominated, as they say in Hollywood. Just to be nominated <laughs> is absolutely incredible. And, and I think, you know, some of the other contenders in our section and in the other sections are just well worthy as well. Awesome. Yeah, that gets announced on June 10th. So I think it will be announced before this podcast goes out. So you can tell I'm reasonably excited now. <laughs> Actually, I'm very excited, but I'm just trying to tamper my hopes. But yeah. you can sense the trepidation in my voice of getting overexcited because we'll find out by the next episode. Ooh. Stay tuned. So moving on to Watchtower Weekly, where we like to round up the latest security news and is, of course, named after our Watchtower service, which helps to keep you notified of any compromised websites or weak passwords and things like that. And this week, we've got a bunch of good stuff to get stuck into. So, Matt, did you want to take it away? Yeah, sure. If, uh, you know, good stuff, you mean terrible things that have happened to people's privacy and security. Yeah. (laughs) Let's go. Depends on your definition of good, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. Uh, Good to be aware of, I I think, (laughs) is the the status there. Nice. Yeah, I like that. So, TikTok has apparently given itself permission to collect biometric data on US users, including fingerprints and voice prints. So this is reported by TechCrunch and it's a change to TikTok's US privacy policy. It was introduced that a new section that says the social video app 
may collect biometric identifiers and biometric information from its users' content, things like fingerprints and voice prints. TikTok could not confirm what product developments necessitated the addition of biometric data to its list of disclosures about the information it automatically collects from users, but it said it would ask for, for consent in the case that such data collection practices began, which is an odd thing to say, right? Like if they're not collecting them yet, why would you put it in the privacy policy? Maybe you attract all the flack, don't do anything, and then you can sneak it in later or, or whatever. But yeah, yeah it doesn't seem like the right way to do it. The first part of the new privacy policy explains that TikTok may collect information about the images and audio that are in users' content, such as identifying objects and scenery that appear and the existence and location within an image of a face or body features and attributes, the nature of the audio and the text of the words spoken in your user content. So while that does sound creepy, other social networks do object recognition on images you upload to power accessibility features like, you know, describing alt text in an Instagram photo, for example. It's used as well for ad targeting purposes, of course, and identifying where a person and the scenery is can also help with AR effects. So those are like, you know, what happens in TikTok and Snapchat and those type of things. It also helps convert spoken words to text with features like TikTok's automatic captions. So the policy also notes that this part of the data collection is for enabling special video effects for content moderation, for demographic classification, for content and ad recommendations, and for other non-personally identifying operations, it says. So the more concerning part of this new section is obviously the references to the fact that it collects biometric data. So it says, we may collect biometric identifiers and biometric information as defined under US laws, such as fingerprints and voice prints from your user content. Where required by law, we will seek any required permissions from you uh, to any such collection. That doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah, the statement itself is is vague and doesn't specify whether it's, you know, considering federal law, state law or both. It also doesn't explain, as the other part, why TikTok needs this data. It doesn't define the term face prints or voice prints. Nor does it, kind of importantly here, nor does it explain how it would go about seeking the required permissions or how it is collecting that data. I don't know a lot about TikTok, but I haven't uploaded my fingerprint there. So I don't know how they're requiring that or anything like that, which is another kind of oddity to that. Yeah. It's important, you know, we state that only a handful of US states actually have biometric privacy laws. If TikTok only requested consent where required by law, it would mean that users outside of those states would not have to be informed about the data collection. When asked to comment, a TikTok spokesperson could not offer more details on the company's plans for biometric data collection or how it may tie into either current or future products. They said, as part of our ongoing commitment to transparency, we recently updated our privacy policy to provide more clarity on the information we may collect. So that, you know, commitment to transparency obviously doesn't expand to their spokesperson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, this is a really weird one. It doesn't say that they are collecting biometric data. It just says that they can. So, like, there's a lot of read into how part of me thinks that there's one side of the coin that it could be just future proofing itself i think so like it could be holding this information and seeing if it can help them in any way from a product point of view and the face prints 
help them learn how to put things on faces and that type of thing. And the voice prints help them learn how to do other stuff. It's always hard to read into privacy policy changes and look at it from a point of what are the features that are actually driving this privacy change. But it strikes me as nothing good can come of this. (laughs) I also think as well in the grand scheme of things, it's still, this is sort of just a drop in the ocean, isn't it? Of the amount of data that TikTok probably already collects on its users. Things like location data, IP addresses, keystroke movements and patterns and, and things like that. So Yeah, it's like they're, they're, they're kind of keeping it, storing it in the bank for when they might need it in the future as well. I can only imagine that they have access to a huge number of face prints and voice prints. Yeah, yeah they, they have a bunch of content, right? This still comes at a time when under the previous government, they did say that they were going to ban it. I think TikTok fought against the ban and they kind of said it only stores US data in in US data centers and in Singapore. But like nothing much came of that, right? Yeah, I think since Biden's administration has come in, it's kind of been put on hold whilst they assess everything. There's probably bigger fish to fry. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see what he does when he finally gets around to looking at this. So the next one is cyber attack hits the world's largest meat supplier. So vegans can rejoice. (laughs) This one's reported by both The Verge and the BBC. So JBS, the world's largest meat supplier, with more than 150 plants in 15 countries, has been targeted by a sophisticated cyber attack. The attack could lead to shortages of meat or raise prices for consumers. So the computer networks at JBS were hacked, temporarily shutting down some operations in Australia, Canada and the US, with thousands of workers affected. So the the FBI have since confirmed that the Russian cyber criminal group Revol were behind the attack. It's those guys again. So it's them again, yeah. The company suspended all affected IT systems as soon as the attack was detected and said backups were service were not hacked. So the IT systems are essential in in modern meat processing plants, which is a horrible phrase, uh, with computers used at multiple stages, including billing and shipping. So according to the trade group Beef Central, apparently that's a real real one, (laughs) supermarkets and other large end users like McDonald's burger patty supply network will be some of the most immediately impacted customers due for their need for (laughs) consistent supply. Yeah, that's the most tragic thing to come from this, right? I mean, (laughs) the people need their hamburgers, all right? Yeah. I thought this would be, this was great play from like Extinction Rebellion or, you know, a climate change activist. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably not them or their kind of activity just because most of these things are ransomwares that get paid in bitcoin or cryptocurrency cryptocurrency is known most at the moment for being absolutely terrible for the environment and the computing power involved yeah so uh two things that are terrible for the environment there but you know um what what i found really interesting about this one is that well it reminded me of the colonial pipeline ransom attack which actually got paid. They got paid like 4.4 million. Yeah, they did. So I'm thinking like, you know, maybe people are seeing that as an example and thinking, great, we're going to get paid. Oh, absolutely. I think the US government are now saying, obviously, don't pay them, which is pretty common knowledge anyway. But Mm -hmm. because so many of these kind of supply chain attacks have been happening recently, I think they're doing a lot of awareness around, please don't pay them. Yeah. 
once you've paid one, then you're going to be paying others. And yeah. It's also like these things run like a business, right? Like, so once they have more money, they hire more people and <laughs> more of these things happen. Mm. And I think they're fed into from the, the insurance as well. Like the insurance is kind of catch 22. Do you have the insurance or does that invite a tax more? The good side of the insurance, I think, is that there are requirements for it, right? Like some of these known parts that can be compromised are you know part of the insurance is that you will you will fix those so i i think it both helps and hurts i think because obviously with the insurance you just instantly yeah like they just instantly pay it there's no kind of meandering around yeah so last month the the fuel delivery in the southeast of the u.s was the one that was crippled for several days with that ransomware targeting the colonial pipeline. Um, so investigators say that that attack was also linked to a group with ties to Russia. But not Revil. I think that was dark side, wasn't it? It was, yeah. According to cybersecurity firm Mandiant, uh, the VPN account didn't use multi-factor authentication, which allowed the hackers to access Colonial's network with a compromised username and password. There we go. It's not clear whether the hackers discovered the username or were able to figure it out independently. The password was discovered among a batch of passwords leaked on the dark web. The dark web there. Bloomberg reporting, not my phrase. I imagine it was just on the regular internet rather than <laughs> any kind of you know dark Tor gateway or anything like that. I bet it was just a forum, mm. right? The hack led to resulting gas prices at around $3 per gallon for the first time in several years in the U.S. gas stations. Close to half of the fuel in the eastern U.S. travels through that affected pipeline, which is uh, wild. Yeah. That is a big, big effect from having a problem with your password. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just shows with, I guess, with this one and the meat supply attack. Like these ransomware attacks, they do have very kind of real world consequences, don't they? It's not just some kind of abstract hack into a system, yeah. but they are affecting proper, you know, supply chains. Absolutely. It's where, it's where the money is, right? Yeah, it's scary. So with, with three of us being British uh, on the call, the thing to talk about is the NHS's or England's NHS plans to share patient data records with third parties. So England's NHS is preparing to scrape the medical record histories of 55 million patients, including sensitive information on mental and sexual health, criminal records and abuse, into a database it will share with third parties. The data collection project is the first of its kind, although they have attempted previously, has caused an uproar among privacy campaigners and who say it is legally problematic, especially as patients only have a few weeks to opt out of the plan. So this plan is called NHS Digital, which runs the help services IT systems. They confirmed the plan to pull together medical records from every patient in England who is registered with a GP clinic into a single lake that will be available to academic and commercial third parties for research and planning purposes. I mean, commercial third parties. <laughs> I mean... There's so many problems with this. Yeah. Corey Kreider, co-founder of Foxglove, a campaign group for the digital rights, said, we want to see the NHS come out of the pandemic stronger, but noted that the NHS has been completely silent on who would have access to this data. Is it pharma companies? Is it the health arm of, of Google? No one really knows. <laughs> and, and Foxglove has issued a legal letter to the Department of Health and Social Care questioning the lawfulness of these plans under the current data protection laws and threatening further legal action. Rosa Curling, a 
solicitor at Foxglove wrote in the letter that she had serious concerns about the legality of the move because no explicit consent has been given and very few members of the public will be aware that the new processing is imminent, directly affecting their personal medical data. So patients have until June 23rd to fill out the T1 form and taking it to their GP in person, and you've got to fill it out on paper before their historical records will become a permanent and irreversible part of this new data set. That end bit there is the terrifying bit here. Like, you can't opt out once you are siphoned into this thing uh, and no one really knows what it's going to be used for and it is identifiable medical data and very sensitive yeah i'm really surprised it's it's allowed you know with the legislation that we have in place in this country already for privacy and data protection i can't believe that this is not opt-in yeah i also can't believe that this isn't on every major news network be like screaming about this 24 7 i think because there isn't like it's very bureaucratic there is like a form that you can download from the internet you put in a couple of details and then literally take it to your gp i think as well it's very convoluted as to what you have to do because i certainly (laughs) Spent a long time trying to work out what I actually needed to fill in. And actually, I think you need to fill in an online form as well as the paper form that you hand into your doctors. Really? So there's like a two-step process, which I'm sure we can link all the details of how you do opt out in the show notes. But yeah, I think they're not obviously raising awareness around this as much because it seems like they kind of want to slide it under the radar, which is pretty shady i think there will be good intentions to some of this right like they get a good idea of the health entirety of the united kingdom they can find out that we're getting larger due to the pandemic (laughs) i certainly am (laughs) and they can find out the kind of the health post pandemic but the identifiable information is not something that should need to be part of any commercial relationship of the national health system. No. It's very problematic. It's the commercial third parties that worry me. Mm. That information on you is so personal in the hands of an advertiser or a party that want to sell you something to pull on your heartstrings. Like, that's the ticket they need, isn't it? Like, Yeah. And as you say, it should be opt-in, regardless of if this is going to be used for helpful research purposes like that's fine if it's going to have a very good use and be of help to our nhs and our health service go for it but yeah definitely should be opt-in the reason why i actively opted out of this and and you know took it in person over to my gp and slapped it down on the table and said my disgust is just because this is the biggest honeypot surely we've ever created as a, a as a country Right? Like, this is screaming for a data breach. Like, if they want to shut down a pipeline that gets them money, just think how much, like, this is just asking for spear phishing, blackmailing, all the terrible stuff that happens on the internet for money. It's just asking for trouble from the fact of a data breach, but also from the fact that, like, I haven't seen this on a single news website. I really think that this has been underreported and it's a a travesty that it has been. Definitely. 
I don't know whether I can continue with this now. Yeah, I don't feel good about any of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of, I feel like this, is, this story just finished me off a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I think we can move on and introduce our special guest this week. And although Rue couldn't be with us for the main show today, he did get a chance to sit down with Josh from Let's Encrypt last week for a little chat about what they're up to and their mission to secure the last 10% of the internet, which is pretty incredible. So hope you all enjoy and join us right back for Three Word Password. Joining me on the show today is Josh Ose, the executive director from Let's Encrypt. Let's Encrypt is a free, automated, and open certificate authority providing people the digital certificates they need in order to enable HTTPS for websites for free. It is the world's largest certificate authority used by more than 265 million websites with the goal of all websites being secure and using HTTPS. 1Password is also now working in partnership with Let's Encrypt for their latest fundraising campaign by matching donations, as well as providing a 1Password gift card to the first 500 supporters. Uh, Josh, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. Fantastic. So this is awesome. I have to tell you, as someone who has set up a few websites in his day, getting a cert has not always been an easy situation, and it kind of sucks because you end up like self-signing and then like no one trusts it. it i'm so excited about this like tell me a little bit about the origination of this first of all is this all you like are, are you just in your apartment just slinging certs somewhere like what's the what's the scope of operation here this is definitely not just me for a long time i was working on the firefox web browser the team that i led there for a while was the networking team and we were in charge of all the network connections that firefox makes and security was really important to us but we really couldn't do anything about the security of a connection if a website didn't enable TLS. So if you're if you're working on that kind of thing and you really want all your users to have a secure connection, it's pretty frustrating. There's nothing you can do on your side to fix the problem. So we were sitting there thinking, how do we get hundreds of millions of websites to enable TLS so that people on the web have a secure experience? It was a pretty daunting problem, but we did some research. We talked to people and said, you know, why don't you turn on TLS? The tools are there. Why don't you do it? And the answer we got almost all the time was getting certificates is too difficult or it's too expensive or it's too much of a pain. Sometimes we got, well, I don't think my site needs encryption. You know, it's not a very important site. Who would want to spy on this? But the most common answer was, I want to do it. It's just too difficult. So we looked at the process of getting a certificate and thought, you know, this could be much easier. And we wanted to get the web encrypted relatively quickly. And the only way that we thought we could get a huge portion of the web encrypted in you know five years or less was to start a new certificate authority that just made getting certificates as easy as possible and free at the same time. So I talked about this with a few other people. We decided to start a new nonprofit. I ended up leaving to run this new nonprofit, and that's where we where we are today. So we started Let's Encrypt in 2015. I think back then, 39% of page loads on the web were encrypted. Today, it's you know five and a half years later. I think it's 85% globally and 92% in the United States. So we've made a huge amount of progress in five years. We're pretty happy with that. That's incredible. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap between One Password and, and Let's Encrypt in terms of trying to make the internet a safer, better place through encryption. It sounds like you've got about 10% of the internet left to encrypt here. That's still a huge huge number of sites and pages like what do you think that that 10 percent looks like i suspect that a big chunk of it is internal corporate sites 
which tend to be a little behind the ball technologically. My guess is that a lot of this is internal corporate sites, but there's also there also just are a bunch of websites spread out across the web who simply still haven't encrypted. Yeah, I actually dug up an old article from one of the Apple developer blogs that I used to follow. Turns out the article was like a decade old. And when I went to the site, the first thing it was like, oh, hey, like this isn't encrypted. And I was like, wow, yeah, a decade ago, I guess. It wasn't as common then. So I can I can see there being just some historical sites even that will never get an update, right? Yeah, I think if you look at a big organization, they're running hundreds, if not thousands of websites. And a lot of those websites are sort of small websites that don't need a lot of touch on a normal basis. So they just exist and nobody's really paying attention. I think the way we'll eventually get to those sites, though, is I think browsers are going to keep ratcheting it up the warning level when a site is not encrypted. So at some point here, it's, you know, the browsers are basically going to refuse to display those sites because it's too much of a security risk. Yeah. Yeah. So let's take a quick detour and let's make sure that we've got terms defined for people because you and I are, are deep in acronym territory. Let's give the audience what HTTPS is, what TLS is, and what SSL is. Sure. So the basic language that the web uses to request things and send data and things like that is HTTP. And you can sort of think of that as a language involving verbs like get and post. You can get a website, you can post to a website, things like that. And if you just speak that language over the web without protecting it in any way, that's just plain HTTP. That data can be seen by anyone in transit and also modified by anyone in transit, which we can get into more later. But if you want to protect the HTTP, you got to send it through a sort of secure encrypted tunnel. So HTTPS is HTTP, but sent over a tunnel using a technology we call TLS. It used to be called SSL. So essentially, you establish a secure encrypted connection with a website, and then you start sending HTTP requests over that secure connection. So what would you say to someone who wasn't already using TLS SSL? Like what makes Let's Encrypt a good option? Well, first of all, if you're not using SSL and TLS, you should definitely do it. I like to point out that it's important for every website to do it. No exceptions, every website. Some people say, you know, the content of my website is not that important. It's basically a digital billboard. I don't care if people are seeing that traffic transit the web. But the bigger issue here even bigger than people being able to see traffic is being able to modify traffic. So even if you are loading a really innocuous web page that's just a simple page with some text, that data can be modified in flight over the wire. So you might think that you're just loading a simple web page, but somewhere along the way, someone could insert anything from an ad to malware or some cryptocurrency mining software or something like that. You really don't know what you're getting. You can't trust that the data you're receiving is the data that the website sent. So you really need HTTPS for the integrity of every website. And like most security-related technologies, you know, the thing that we f- focus on in order to get wider adoption is ease of use. So we try to make Let's Encrypt as easy to use as possible. So there's, you know, hopefully no reason for it not to work for anybody. And a big part of that for us is automation. We run an API and then there's software out there that will get certificates from us so that people don't need to know much about the certificate issuance process. You know, in an ideal world, you just hit a button and the software does its thing and you get a certificate. In an even more ideal world, you know, maybe the best possible world, you don't even need to know you're using Let's Encrypt. Really, software, when you start up a website, should just get a certificate and use it properly without you needing to know about it or even needing to know about the existence of Let's Encrypt. 
you know, our goal is to be so easy to use that we're invisible. Yeah, that ease of use, I think, is really critical. So I recently set up a new site using GitHub Pages, and GitHub Pages is already pretty plug and play. Like, you just put in your details, and, and away you go, set up a new repo. It's great. And one of the options there is securing your site over HTTPS. And I was like, oh, yep, of course. And I checked the box, and it, you know, spins for a couple seconds, and it goes, hey, like, uh, you're all set. And so while we're talking, I just went and checked my cert, and sure enough, it's a Let's Encrypt cert. So you're obviously working with GitHub to help sort of proliferate this. Yeah, we're pretty happy with how easy we've made it for organizations of any size to get a cert. You know, it's easy for someone running a web server at home, and it's easy for an organization that does, you know, we've had companies pull a million certs in a day, and that's fine. Holy cow. We're regularly issuing a couple million certs per day. It looks like recently we issued 3 million in a single day for the first time. That is huge. You know, we support 200. 65 million websites and we're prepared to support about double that so we got to keep up with a big web here yeah absolutely wow okay so i mean it's a huge goal encrypting every website on the internet how big is the let's encrypt team it's not huge it is 15 people actually 14 people working on let's encrypt so that's about 10 engineers and four staff that work on things from administration and finance to fundraising and communications so the technical team on let's encrypt at any given time is about 10 people. Wow. That seems like a really small team for for such a huge scope of work. Where is the biggest challenge for the job? Is it infrastructure maintenance? Is there much of a support load? Like what's where does the most of the time go? Well, we have a bunch of servers and a lot of compliance obligations. There's always security improvements to be made, efficiency improvements to be made. We get all this stuff done because first of all, we have an obsessive focus on automation and efficiency within our organization. But secondly, we get a lot of support from our community. So we have a great community out there that provides support for our subscribers in our community forums. They translate our website. They write the client software that subscribers use to get certificates from Let's Encrypt. So we're really grateful for their support and everyone involved is really helping to make the web a more secure and privacy respecting place. But yeah, there is a lot of work for our technical staff to maintain these servers, make sure everything is up to date. You know, we write all of our own software to run Let's Encrypt. That's open source up on GitHub. So writing all the software that it takes to maintain a high capacity, compliant, secure, modern certificate authority. It takes a lot of work making sure that's tested and deployed properly. You know, we have a lot of segregation and security protections within our network and maintaining all that is a lot of work, but our team is fantastic. You know, the same obsession with ease of use and automation that we try to give to the people who use Let's Encrypt, we try to bring those principles internally as well. So for 10 people to do this work, we have to make sure that our systems are as easy to maintain as possible, automated as much as possible. As someone who has worked on on a couple software projects, hearing you say that you have an obsessive approach to automation, I know that there's a lot behind that simple phrase. What are some of the automated parts of of your workflow or or the company's workflow, the organization's workflow that you're most proud of or, or sort of nerd out about the most? Whenever you have to do something in a complex infrastructure, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And if you have people following a really long set of instructions or typing a long series of commands, you know, any one of those commands mistyped or something like that can cause a problem. It can lead to downtime, could lead to security issues, anything like that. So you really don't want 
people doing anything that computers can do. I mean, computers, I like to think of computers as, you know, they're, they're not that smart on their own, but they're really good at following instructions reliably. So anytime that we watch our staff, we say anytime staff are just following some directions and typing commands and just doing a task that's sort of repetitive, we like to think, okay, how can we make this go away? How can we make the computer do this so that it's more reliable? Because our staff are amazing, but all people make mistakes. And the less our staff have to do, the less likely it is that we'll make those mistakes. So I don't know if I can cite a huge piece right now, but uh, you know, our general approach is to look at our infrastructure and say, where are we spending time typing commands or doing anything manually that we can just write programs, write tests, and, and have our infrastructure sort of run itself. Nice. That's, that's really cool. So as this episode goes live, you're kicking off a summer giving campaign. Where should listeners go to contribute? And where can people go to find out more about Let's Encrypt and, and all the cool work that you're doing? Yeah, so 100% of our funding comes from charitable contributions from individuals and organizations. And each summer, we kick off a campaign to seek support from people who care about our work. So this year, we're really excited to be partnering with 1Password on this. We have a goal to raise $50,000, and 1Password is helping us get there by matching every donation. So when someone donates 50 bucks, 1Password matches it with another 50 bucks. You can go to letsencrypt.org slash donate to be part of this campaign, which runs now through the end of June. And the last thing I want to say is if you have someone in your life who could benefit from 1Password, you'll get four months of 1Password families free when you donate 50 bucks or more to the campaign. Well, that's a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> he, he says as the 1Password person on the call. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. Yeah. No, this is awesome. I, I'm really excited about this. I knew that this was something that I cared about. I didn't realize just how much Let's Encrypt has impacted something that I've I've wanted to have for a long time. So I I mean, I just want to take a minute to say thanks. Like this is super cool and congratulations. Like what an awesome accomplishment and I can't I can't wait to see you get to the the last 10% of the internet. Yeah. Thanks for all you do for helping people secure their passwords, you know. A secure connection on a website is just one part of a secure experience on the web. And we need people out there working on the problem of password management, and authentication, and things like that. So thanks for your work as well. Cheers. Awesome. Josh, thanks so much for coming by today. This was great. Yeah, thank you. So shall we move on to three-word password? Three-word password. And it's girl power today because it's Kat and I teaming up against Matt. Yes. I, I mean... Anna, you were good with the food elements. I was, So yeah. I avoided all food references this time. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm relying on Kat's general knowledge here because she's been... Yeah, Kat's general knowledge was, was seemingly unfazed last time. Okay, well, don't put me on a pedestal, but let's see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a, a mix of chemistry, astrology... And comedy. Oh dear, I'm gone. <laughs> so here we go. So this is the single worst way to share a password. Uh, we use cryptic clues to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator. So this time I've had to, you know, hit the regenerate button quite a few times to get something that's understandable by humans in a in a couple of sentences because you know sometimes you can say the word but you really can't describe it <laughs> so here we go with three word password and i think we're gonna we're, we're gonna take guesses in between the words so yeah. here we go a chemical element with the symbol ir and atomic number 77 a very hard brittle silvery white transition metal of the platinum group it's considered to be the second densest metal 
It's also a jazz club in New York and a fictional high school in every which way. A teen telenovela about witches. So there you go. If your chemistry wasn't very good, maybe your teen telenovelas are better. Or your jazz knowledge. Yeah. Oh, no. My chemistry knowledge should be good, but I don't know this, this chemical. I am. I'm trying to think. What... I'm thinking of like ir- uranium. Yeah. But I think I'm thinking of ur- uranium, which is not, that's not the one. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to think what a jazz club would be called. And my first thought went to brass, but that's not a silvery white transition metal (laughs) yep not of the platinum group either no i mean why would they name a jazz club after this thing i love that you gave us the atomic number you need the um the animaniacs telling you every chemical element i'm just trying to picture the periodic table now i'm like hang on a second atomic number 77 oh i know what it is no (laughs) (laughs) shall we come back to that one yeah all right so the second one in western astrology It is divided into 12 signs, each occupying 30 degrees of celestial longitude and roughly corresponding to constellations. It is also the moniker given to a serial killer who has been the subject of a number of books and movies. What's a moniker? Oh, Zodiac. It is the Zodiac. Yes, Anna. Yes. Boom. (laughs) Woohoo. So glad you're here. There we go. Right. So one down. (laughs) I only got that on the serial killer part, not the astrology part. But I I put two and two together and we got there. Very cool. Let's, Let's see if we get this one on the examples as well. So a creative work designed to imitate, comment on, and or make fun of its subject by means of satire. The earliest example is Mud and Sand by Stan Laurel. But later examples include Disaster Movie, Vampire Suck, and the 2000 straight-to-DVD classic, Shriek If You Know What I Did Last <laughs> Friday the 13th. What is it? Is it a spoof? Oh my it's God. a similar word as spoof. Like, it means a similar thing. A creative work designed to imitate. Uh, parody? It is a parody. Yes. God, Anna, you were so good. Oh, I got some help from you there. So now we just need the first one. <laughs> I'm relying on you for this first one, Kat. You can do it with your chemistry knowledge. Brittle, silvery, white transition metal. The temptation to Google in this game is just all too much sometimes. <laughs> yeah, the transition metals... No, you metals, can't do that. Transition metals are in the middle of the periodic table, right? yes that's right big group of them in the middle i think it's below rhodesium is that a real one (laughs) rhodium and it's next to platinum iron it's not iron it's not iron oh is it close to iron no (laughs) i think i might have you on this one what tell us matt just tell us i'm dying it's iridium oh no (laughs) (laughs) it's iridium there we go I don't know what you use Iridium for. My, yeah, no. It sounds like something from a superhero movie, but, you know. <laughs> there we go. So Iridium, Zodiac, parody. Yep. Nice. I mean... We, we were almost there. You know, if that came out generated first time, I'd be pretty happy with that. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, pretty I'd strong. I'd probably add a couple more words, but I don't think we have time for that. <laughs> if it was my actual password. <laughs> well, we got beaten by three-word password this time. Yeah. It's the first time I've failed, there's always next time. That's all right. I'll make it increasingly more difficult as we go through. (laughs) All right. I think that is all we have time for. Awesome. Thanks so much, you two. It's been an absolute pleasure. Love you guys. Love you both. Love you both. Bye. Bye.